Welcome to Season 2 of Rooted in Relationships Podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Pickell. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, child education, and other factors all influence relationships building. In this episode, Kent talks with Dr. Jun Lee Lee, a senior lecturer in childhood education at Harvard Graduate School of Education. Dr. Lee discusses how regardless of culture or context, meaningful relationships and positive development can occur through simple interactions. I can't wait for you to hear this episode. I am really excited on this episode of the Rooted in Relationships podcast to have researcher and I think I can say practitioner who I have admired for a really long time joining me. Junlei Lee is the Saul Zant Senior Lecturer in Early Childhood Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And Junlei's research and, and his practice work focuses on understanding and supporting the work of helpers, those adults who work directly with children and families in schools, out-of-schools, time settings, and actually a wide array of social service organizations. So, Junlei, thank you for making time to join us today. Ken, it's a pleasure to join you. So, I'm going to talk about your academic work, and we're going to get there, but I'd actually just like to start from a, another interesting point. There was a, a couple of years ago, I think it was, I went to see the Mr. Rogers movie. I think it was the, the documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And it was a, a wonderful movie that got a lot of acclaim. And then all of a sudden, you pop up. And I'm probably the only one in the theater, and I'm like, I know that guy. He does this amazing research on developmental relationships. And I knew you had been at an institute associated with Fred Rogers, but I, at the time, I didn't quite realized that there was both a professional and even to some extent, not necessarily personal connection as in a you know friendship relationship, but really Mr. Rogers' life mission has also had a through line to your own research and your own work. So can maybe we start there with that connection to Mr. Rogers, who I will just say for Americans growing up of my generation was a developmental relationship through the TV. Absolutely. I think I went to graduate school to study developmental psychology at Carnegie Mellon, and our psychology department building was about three minutes walk from Mr. Rogers' apartment, <laughs> where he lived and, and produced the program. Now, I grew up in China, so I had no idea who he was. And I remember some of the mornings, you know, when I didn't have an early class, I would turn on PBS and there would be a Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And it was a really interesting experience of going to graduate school and, and reading all these papers, right, about, you know, children's development and then turn on television and have Mr. Rogers talking about children's development. It's almost like studying in two entirely different schools <laughs> because the language they used and the kind of things they focused on was so different. 
And I think later on, when I went into the classrooms to do my research in the schools in Pittsburgh, I think gradually I find that a lot of the things that Mr. Rogers shared was much more fitting to help me to understand what happens in the real world with uh, teachers and children and families than even, you know, a lot of the things I was uh, studying in, in graduate school. So ever since then, I think his work became kind of almost a role model for me. And then it just so happens if you, you know, in Pittsburgh long enough, you become connected. So ended up for a while, had a role in the production nonprofit for Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, and then eventually went on to be the director and faculty of the Fred Rogers Center, which Kent, you had visited the small town of Latrobe, where that's where he was born and raised. And, and after he retired, he decided to establish the center there. That's so funny because when I went, I was sharing with Junlei before that we started. I did a workshop at the high school there where actually Junlei's own kids attended. And I actually, even to this moment, didn't know that that's why it was then Latrobe, that that's where actually he was from. So lots of circuitous pathways. Speaking of circuitous pathways, I wonder if before we turn to your research and the work you're doing today, you'd actually also kind of take us on that pathway you just briefly alluded to. How does a guy who grew up in China end up doing really pathfinding research in the United States on developmental relationships? And is there a through line there as well from the experiences you had yourself as a, a young person and the work that you're doing today? I think there is a through line, although it's not a line that's clearly sketched out. Mr. Rogers had this beautiful phrase, which he described kind of how one's work and life unfolds, and he called it guided drift. And And I felt that it was very much like a guided drift. I think my parents were both teachers. So I was, you know, ever since I was young, I was very engaged in teaching and learning. And that's what I went to study in graduate school. But it's very much focused on the teaching and learning part of psychology and children's development. But what ended up happening was that when I was in the classrooms, you know, I had all my idea full of, you know, what you should do in cognition and instruction and technology. And then when I go into the classrooms, I find that, you know, there are some teachers, right, who just seem to be able to connect with children really, really well. And there's no cookie cutter box from which they came. So it's not like, you know, all the teachers who connect with kids, well, all talk the same tone or say the same words. In fact, they're not. Some are very active and loud. Some are very quiet. Some are elderly who barely moved around and some are very energetic and bounced around the classrooms. But nevertheless, they seem to connect extremely well with children, not just in terms of a social connection, but even in terms of the way they taught. And that really puzzled me. <laughs> I didn't know what is it that helped teachers to do that. So th that was part of the experience. But later on, the experience was much more personal and professional. After spending a few years in the classrooms and became a parent, an adoptive parent, and my two children came from orphanages in China. So as a researcher, you know, prior to the adoption, I would read all these literature about orphanages and institutionalization in Romania, you know, in Russia, in China, and so on. And that is the one kind of sad and tragic research context, right, that tell us about what happens when children 
are deprived of or limited from being able to build healthy human relationships with others. And then what happens if they get to build these relationships in foster care and adoptive care afterwards? So these two things, they're not meant to be connected, but at least for me, they connected to kind of how human relationships is so important and how human relationships can be built anywhere, not just in schools, but even in places as difficult as the the orphanage environment. And I think these kind of personal professional experience eventually kind of really pushed or nudged me towards this line of thinking and understanding, trying to understand what are relationships made of. Mm. Just to stay with the brief kind of tangent around China and the United States, before COVID, I gave a talk to a visiting group of Chinese educators that were in the United States, and I showed them some of the data we have from our work at Search Institute that generally in schools and in other settings shows a big discrepancy between how the adults think the relationship is going and how the young people report on the relationship, mostly in adolescence. So for instance, the adults saying, this is how frequently or intensively I express care, for instance, and then what the young people report and that there's usually a gap. And I showed it and this pretty diverse group of, of educators from different parts of China and all, all in Chinese got into a bit of a debate with each other about the degree to which Chinese students would have evaluated teachers similarly. The first question was some said Chinese students would never look like that. They love their teachers it would be much better they wouldn't they wouldn't have the low rankings but then someone in the back of the room and i had a very good translator even though i spent a couple of years living in wuhan china after college so i could understand parts of it but um then someone in the back room said oh no, no the chinese students just wouldn't be truthful they would feel the same way but they wouldn't they wouldn't report the honest perceptions like the american kids do the the cultural differences in your country of origin and your current work in the United States ever ever come up either you know formally or informally in the back of your mind? Or should I throw the the baby out with the bathwater on my like very uninformed hypothesis that there might have been some interesting cultural dynamics at play there around teacher-student relationships that obviously this one conversation didn't enable me to explore in any depth? Well, I think the question comes up a lot, in part because much of my professional work goes back and forth between China and the United States. I don't do comparative work, but you can imagine as I go go back and forth, I'm asked to compare. And I think there's a broader assumption, even you know, in China, that teachers and parents make, which is that the way we build relationships uh, may be very different from how an American parent or American teacher build relationships with the children. I think in my observation and understanding, one thing is for sure, which is that an adolescent in China and an adolescent in the United States or an adolescent in Canada, right, they all want these relationships. So regardless of where you are, it doesn't change the fundamental need for developmental relationships. Now, what is different may be the external form or the surface features of what that relationship look like. So for example, in China, you know, educators may look from a distance and think, you know, in America, the adults may be more affirmative and praising, (laughs) whereas the Chinese adults and teachers may be a little more critical, a little more challenging, right? Whether or not it's true, I can't be sure. But I think people have a belief that a lot of these surface forms and features are different. But I think the underlying dimensions of why we need a relationship is universal across these cultural 
lines, right? That, that we are still looking for a connection. We are looking for someone to support us, to challenge us. And we are looking for someone to help us to grow. And we are looking for someone to listen to us, to see us as who we are. So that I think is my general takeaway from kind of working across not only different cultural contexts, but even different age contexts and, and different organizational contexts when it comes to relationships. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think we'll, we'll come come back to the differences in, in context in a moment, but just to kind of now zero in a little bit on, on your own research, there's an article that you and a colleague, uh, Megan Julian, did in 2012 that has been very influential in our work at Search Institute, and I know in many other settings too. It was Developmental Relationships as the Active Ingredient, a Unifying Working Hypothesis of What Works across intervention settings. And it was in the Journal of Orthopsychiatry, which I'm sure is next to the bedside of every person listening to this podcast. <laughs> but for us, it was it was really, really influential. So if you could just kind of go back to that, here's my here's my questions. Um, in a nutshell, what was the hypothesis that you proposed in, in that article? So really start there. But then also, is there anything that either you've learned or you might frame differently about that hypothesis this many years later? That's right. I think the hypothesis back then, if I were to restate it now, is that practices and programs and policies in education and human services, they work if and only if they help to strengthen the human relationships around children and families. That's the hypothesis. <laughs> and I think at the time, it was in reaction to a tremendous amount of pressure in the education and social services sector in the United States pushing on finding and replicating so-called evidence-based programming. And I think my concern at the time was that these programs worked once upon a time because they built relationships. But when you copy the features of the program without paying attention to the underlying relational foundation of what makes a program work, then these programs won't work. And during that era, during the 2000s, all the way to, you know, perhaps even now, so often what you'll find is that evidence-based programs, once they scale up, right, their effect becomes way less than what you found originally, and sometimes to negligible levels. In part because I think we were, I think collectively we become so wedded, I think, to the fidelity to the program features and in the process maybe neglected what I think another researcher called the integrity of the programs, the integrity or the wholeness of a program, which is grounded in these human relationships. So anyhow, that was the hypothesis then, and I still very much believe it. But there is one key caveat that if, you know, if or when we rewrite that, I would add, which is at the time, we did not sufficiently describe the relationship between the active ingredient and the inactive ingredients, right? So, so we talked about how the relationship is the active ingredient. It's like the fluoride in the toothpaste, right? But there's other things in the toothpaste. They're not useless things. Right, Just because something is an inactive ingredient doesn't make it useless. And so when we're out in workshops and so on, we would give the example of the flavor of the toothpaste. Right, So the flavor of a toothpaste doesn't prevent cavity. Right, 
But let's say if you're a young child and you hate these really spicy toothpaste, so having a bubblegum flavor helps you to brush for three minutes without spitting it out. So the way the bubblegum flavor works is that it helped the fluoride to actually do its job. And so between active and inactive ingredients, there ought to be this intentional relationship where we put these inactive ingredients and structures together because we want the active ingredients to work better. So in the context of the schools, it's not to say that a school should exist without buildings, without computers, without curriculum, but it's this intentional effort to say that, you know, when we add this piece of technology or this piece of curriculum inside the classroom, our goal isn't just to replicate that curriculum. Our goal is such that this thing we add will transform and strengthen the teacher-student or the student-student relationship, or even the teacher and family relationship. And so if all these inactive ingredients are added with that intention, then we have a much more coherent system. It's not about picking relationships over and above curriculum. It's to say, let's pick the kind of curriculum, the technology, or whatever it is that actually supports the relationship. So that part, that relationship between inactive and active ingredient, in hindsight, I would have wanted to make explicit. Yeah, that's fascinating. We just got funding at Search Institute for a, it'll be a study, but more of a collaborative technical assistance project to look at the role of developmental relationships in small group math tutoring for middle school students who are way behind. So it's going to be very specific to a context, tutoring for kids who are way behind in math, as opposed to a more generalized look. And I'm excited about it because I think we're going to get into what you're talking about, the the interplay between the active and inactive ingredients. Because, you know, not all tutoring curricula, not all tutoring structures are created necessarily equal or useful in every setting. And our job, and Mathematica's the lead evaluator on it, is just going to be to look at the relational experience in that context. So I'm excited about that. I have to tell you, too, I think you know this. We we worked with a, another applied research nonprofit like Search Institute called Frameworks Institute to test ways to communicate developmental relationships. And I fell in love with your fluoride metaphor. And I've used it with teachers and youth workers and everybody all across the country. And Frameworks tested it. And in the end, they came up with and urged us to abandon fluoride and instead embrace roots, the roots of a tree of youth development, because they felt that it was more you know, organic and holistic. And the more they talked to me, the more I felt there's something wrong with me, because I still was more moved by fluoride and things. And they're like, no, no, people in the real world. And so I've actually started, I do a little thing where I ask teachers, I, I show them a piece of thing of toothpaste and I show them roots and organic. And I have to say, usually the roots win, but there's a strong 25, 30% who loves the fluoride metaphor. Uh, but both are, I think, powerful ways to convey, convey the idea. When you talk about the active ingredient of relationships being left out too often or underemphasized, it brings to mind something that I once either heard or read the New York Times columnist David Brooks say, because he writes a lot about relationships and social capital. He said, you can't scale relationships. And he was sort of proposing this as, as I think, a, a sort of a warning against trying to sort of reweave society through programs, in a sense. And yet, when I heard that, I really struggled with it, because I thought, if we can't scale relationships, we're never going to get where we need to go. Like, we have to find some... Does that resonate with you at all, in a, in a sense? Because I think your article and your subsequent work was, it is a really powerful way, and I think this will take us into your Simple Interactions work, some kind of a way to scale this work, but that doesn't neglect the active ingredient. That's right. So 
That's an interesting statement to pull apart. You can't scale relationships. I think that is true if and only if we understand scale as replication. So, you know, if you, <laughs> to take a simple example, you know, if you're a married couple, you look at a, your neighbors who are a married couple and they seem to have a wonderful relationship and you wanted to replicate their relationship in your own house, that's not going to happen, right? You can't just make a copy of someone else's relationship and make yours. But if we think about scale in the broader sense of scale, right, there, there has been a couple of uh, wonderful paper in the field, I think, by Morell and Cynthia Coburn called Multiple Meanings of Scale and so on. When they think about scale, not as just making like McDonald's copies of, you know, hamburgers, but they talked about adoption, adaptation, about remixing reinventing, right? So if you think about it in that way, then I absolutely think the relationship can be scaled. Let's think about awareness, right? To just help teachers and parents and policymaker administrator to be aware that relationship is central to who they are as parents, as teachers, as administrators. That awareness itself is really important. And of course, a lot of search institutes work as well as my work and many other colleagues work is to increase that kind of an awareness. Two is kind of adopt these ideas, right? Adopt ideas about how do we think about relationships? How do we assess relationships? How do we intentionally piece together our programs to strengthen it? You can adopt and adapt a lot of these ideas within the programs. That's one way to scale that. And lastly, right, remix, or in this case, redesign, right? So think about, you know, if someone already had a curriculum, but now that they're becoming much more aware of the importance of relationships, so they redesign, they remix their curriculum to be much more intentional about how their curriculum builds relationships between teachers and students and among students. That would be another way in which relationship can be scaled. So I think if we expand the notion of what scale is, and let's say, let's use a, going back to the roots and shoots kind of an idea, right? Let's just reframe the question as, can we grow relationships? And I think the answer is absolutely yes, that there are a lot of explicit, specific things we can do to structure the environment, to provide support, to build communities that can actually grow relationships at scale without thinking about replicating you know, one single program or intervention at a time. So let's turn to the, the work you've done through Simple Interactions and other things um, along those lines in just a moment. But there's one more question I, I want to ask that I've actually wanted to ask for quite a while about your, your 2012 article. When you advanced that, that provocative hypothesis in the article, you pretty explicitly said that developmental relationships were the active ingredient of effective interventions for at-risk children and youth across settings. That was the term you used then. We use the term young people growing up in marginalized communities. There's lots of different ways to put kids who are on the, the wrong side of equity and opportunity in our society. Was that because you would see developmental relationships as not necessarily the active ingredient for more advantaged children and youth? Or was it really just an emphasis to zero in on those young people who who need those connections more? And I'll just say one other point on this. I was reminded of that question I had about your article when I read several reviews of sort of the social psychological mindset literature a couple of years ago that really said, you know, 
these experiments have an effect for kids who face racism and institutional oppression and marginalization, but they don't have an effect for the white kids or the more advantaged kids. And so really what they're trying to do is address stereotype threat and address factors like that. And let's name it as that. These are anti-oppressive research strategies as opposed to universal or generalized. Now, I just I just way generalized uh, beyond the where I could, could back up that connection. But going back to your work, are developmental relationships the active ingredient for those young people growing up in marginalized communities and not more advantaged kids? Or how would you characterize uh, your own thinking on that question? That's a great question. I think when we said that, it comes from two places. One is that at that time, as well as now, most of our work studying developmental relationships and promoting it happens in context in which there are great inequities in the distribution of resources, both material and professional resources. So in a way, we feel like we're always speaking about relationship in the context of addressing inequity. The other part is that we wanted to call that out specifically because many of the interventions that are imposed upon marginalized communities for so-called at-risk young people or families, tend to neglect the relational part. So take the example of taking, you know, draconian test accountability policies, right, and imposing it onto low-income students and schools and communities. These policies, you know, cost a tremendous amount of money. And the premise is that, you know, these students need the basic skills and we need to really drum these basic skills through But the consequence of so many of these acts is that it corrupts the teacher and student relationship, right? That it puts the kind of pressure on teachers, and the teacher then in turn puts that pressure on the students. So these interventions undermines the very thing that children need. So it is not the case that only marginalized children and youth and families need developmental relationships. Developmental relationships are needed for healthy development for every human being anywhere in the world. It is just that the kind of systemic and historical inequity makes it such that children and youth and families in equitable places have the least access to opportunities for developmental relationships. And often because of the way we've done policies and interventions. So for our work, we thought that it was really important to call out the need for explicitly and intentionally relationship-based programs and policies, particularly in the context of wanting to address inequity. That's great. Super helpful. I've always wondered that. It's I had to do a podcast to ask you it instead of just emailing you. So I'm really glad, really glad we got to it. So so let's talk a little bit about simple interactions, which I followed its evolution. What is it? Where did it come from? And to what extent does that remain a continuing focus of your own research today? Or are you heading in some new directions? So that's a horrible multi-part question. Let's just start with what is simple interactions? I think simple interactions is the work that's trying to address a very simple question that comes at the end of, let's say, a presentation or workshop about relationships. And the question is simply, so what? 
<laughs> and I know, Kent, you wrote a piece not too long ago in the Journal of Youth Development about kind of moving beyond relationships. And you talked about how, you know, you would ask a group of teachers, you know, how many of you have heard your boss telling you, you know, relationships important? Everybody did, right? And then if you follow up with the question, but how many of you have had opportunities to really learn about like what it takes to have a relationship, but then the fewer hands come up. And I think that's the same motivation behind simple interactions, which is that when we talk about the importance of uh, relationship in a grand scale, I think almost everybody agrees. Like over the years, you know, we can talk to frontline practitioners, we can talk to legislators and governors, and nobody comes out and say, I think relationship is not important at all. Like I have never heard that before, but on the practical matter is what does relationship look like? Not just what does it feel like, but what does it look like day in and day out? Like, you know, if, if we survey a young person and we ask them, you know, with whom do you have these kind of relationships? A young person would be able to say, yeah, you know, here are three people with whom I have that relationship. But wouldn't it be interesting to go to the very beginning of when that young person met the people and think about what happened in the first three or 30 interactions that they had that allowed them years from there and to feel that they had a relationship with them. So that was the, I think, beginning of thinking about simple interactions, to break relationship down to its tiny little everyday building blocks, which to us are simple and ordinary interactions. And then to look at these actual everyday interactions to see what is happening Right, in a five-second or three-minute or five-minute interaction that actually contributes to the strengthening and growth of a relationship over time. And so for simple interactions, you know, we break it down into kind of not different elements, but different lens with which to look at an interaction. And these lens theoretically are not that different from, you know, what Yuri Brunfrenbrenner or Vygotsky talk about in theory, but in practice, they are actually quite in parallel, for example, with the dimensions that the Search Institute have identified, you know, for developmental relationships. Yeah, I hope that our listeners will go to the Simple Interactions website and um, actually download the Simple, in Simple Interactions tool. I've seen it before. I think you showed it to me in development. Last night in getting ready for this, I actually downloaded it and intentionally didn't look at the labels and just looked at the pictures to see if I could tell what you were trying to get into with, like, for instance, the serve and return between an adult and a good. And I have to say, I was able to look at these little cartoon pictures that you and your colleagues have created and quite quickly understand the profound interaction that was happening between an adult and a young per person. I can only imagine the amount of time you must have spent trying to get those pictures as as clear as they are in the tool. Because it's, it's my understanding that you that's not just used by researchers, I mean, who are trained to do, you know, careful observation. You're making that tool available to people out there working with kids as a resource to observe their own practice and their colleagues' practice. Is that right? That's right. And I wanted to highlight two particular colleagues uh, who have contributed significantly to the development of this thinking. One is uh, Tom Akiva from University of Pittsburgh, who's done a lot of work and continues to do a lot of work in, in youth development. The other is uh, Dr. Dana Winters, who's now the director and faculty of the Fred Rogers Center out in Pittsburgh. And what Tom and Dana and I, as well as other colleagues, have done is to first and foremost use the tool with practitioners. 
Tom have done some research work on top of that, but we wanted to make sure that we designed a tool that practitioners could use. So in the very, very beginning, the tool was developed to be used with orphanage caregivers whose education tend to be below high school level, right? Who has no particular specialty in child development. But uh, you mentioned pictures, right? We wanted them to be pictures so that people can give their own words to what it means, as opposed to us dictating what a relationship has to look like. And then, you know, my colleague Tom did this facilitating after-school providers and public housing projects in Pittsburgh, along with other after-school providers. And my colleague, uh, Dr. Dana Winters, did that with crossing guards on the street, as well as social workers in the hospitals. And together, we did it with social workers in Canada who are in residential foster youth care. So anyhow, I think we have been really excited, I think, about the Simple Interactions work because they, they seem to have been a tool and a way to allow practitioners to unpack that black box of relationships all the way down to the level of the way they interact with young people day in and day out. Yeah, one of the things that I find similarly a benefit of when people use the developmental relationships framework that has grown out of our own applied research is it gives them a lens to think about their own practice, and that when that is internalized, it becomes almost subconscious. I was out in Las Vegas, and I was doing a talk, and, and somebody who was on the board of the organization, well, it was Communities and Schools, wonderful organization, was on the board, and they had a board member come in, and she was giving a talk about her career and her work, and she said something that just stuck with me. She said, you know how when you buy a new car, like a red Toyota, and then you're driving around, and for the next two, three, four, five months, you will notice every red Toyota that you see, because you have made a personal connection to red Toyotas. It's not that there are more red Toyotas in the world, but you are now seeing the red Toyotas. And I came home and I said that to my wife, and she said, oh yeah, that's like when you're pregnant, because you notice every other pregnant woman. I said, well, I would never have had that. But like, it's suddenly elevated in your consciousness. So I, when I looked at the simple, simple Interactions tool, I thought, especially for someone working in early childhood, if you looked at those pictures, then when you're, when you're there in the middle of a daycare center or an orphanage or a elementary school classroom, and you're in that moment, those powerful pictures you've given are sort of like the red Toyota. Like, oh, I see this moment now for what it is. And I didn't need Junlei Lee to come in and tell me the research behind it. Like, it gave me this frame, you know, to think about and, and work on. How much is the Simple Actions, Simple Interactions work still today, the, the focus of your work? You're now at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard. Um, what are you working on these days in this, this broad space of developmental relationships? I think the biggest change over the last uh, 10 years in our uh, work is 10 years ago, um, I was spending most of my time observing and thinking about how does adult-child relationship manifest itself in these everyday simple interactions. With the help and, and partnership with uh, my colleagues, you know, Tom and Dana that I mentioned earlier, I think increasingly we collectively are thinking about what kind of developmental relationships do we need to build and strengthen within the adult systems between the grown-ups? So who are the developmental relationships for teachers, for social work workers? And, and how do we develop a system or a program or an organization in which 
the developmental relationships are layered, right? So the children get developmental relationship opportunities, but so do the adults. And what do the adult-to-adult interaction looks like? And so much of our work right now has been thinking about professional learning at the adult-to-adult level, but also trying to develop the kind of messages and advocacies for people who are thinking about policies and systems to think about how they might support the whole system, right? To develop what we call kind of a, a, a relationship-based vision or relationship-based theory of change across an entire system, like the early childhood system or the informal learning system or the K through 12 kind of a system. And then the other part of my personal work as a faculty is I'm, I'm deeply committed to in the classroom to help to develop and help to support the development of new generations of child and youth serving professionals so that they bring whatever experiences they have into the classroom. And when they leave the classroom, they're even more in, in equipped and empowered to think relationally through their professional uh, leadership work. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and it comes up in our work all the time, too, the relationships among the adults. What's your sort of either early or maybe well-developed hypothesis there that what kind of relationships among adults would benefit kids in broad brush terms? Yeah, so I'll quote one of my colleagues, Dana Winters. You know, can't you mention our simple interactions tool with all the sketch figures, right? And because the tool was adult for child, so you can see that some of the figures have a big head and, and some of the figures have a little head, indicating adult child. So my colleague Dana would, in the middle of her training, would say something like, let's not get too hung up on the size of the head. And so the idea was that every mode of interaction we have in the Simple Interactions tool. If you just forget the fact that there are big heads and little heads and make them all the same, and then see the extent to which that may apply to adult and adult relationships, or even a relationship between different entities within a system. For example, between a regulatory agency and a frontline service provider, service delivery agency? Like, are there reciprocal relationships, reciprocal interactions between these two different power layers of the system? Are there a sense of connection between them? Do they support each other's growth and development? So our broader hypothesis is what we say is we ought to do for the helpers what we imagine the best helpers do for children. Oh, that's wonderful. I was leading one of these workshops, and it was with 70 school principals in a rural area. And we have an exercise we use with teachers or out-of-school time program staff that work directly with kids that works great. And it's we call it of a continuum of intentionality, and you have a wall, and then you basically give them prompts about things tied to our framework of expressing care or challenging growth or providing support. And they walk along the wall where they evaluate their practice. And it works great with people who work directly with kids. So in this one workshop with school principals, I tried it with the principals, and it was bombing. I think mostly because... They don't work, well, there were exceptions in the room, but for many of them, they were realizing, I don't work closely enough with the kids in my building, because I was asking them to evaluate their, their relationship with kids. So at the middle of the exercise, just like one of those Hail Mary moments as a facilitator, I, I said, okay, this isn't working. Now I'm going to ask you to evaluate your relationship with the teachers. And everything changed. People started both laughing, and it became much more uncomfortable, because you know a key part of our framework is sharing power and expanding possibilities. Do you share power with your teachers? It became a 
a much more engaging exercise to have them walking along the, the continuum and talking to each other about the relationships with teachers. But I've never gone back to that and tried to build it into anything since then. It was one of those spot of the moment. I think it's sort of aligned with what your your new research is starting to, to think about. Well, this has been unbelievable. I want to ask you one more question that we're asking most of the, the researchers uh, and thought leaders that we're interviewing for this podcast. And that is just as we we hope here in May of 2021, as we're talking, as we hope by the time people are listening to this, we'll be further along in emerging this pandemic. What do you think, Junlei, we, the great collective amorphous we need to remember from this experience of the pandemic? In whatever zone you think we should remember it in terms of research or practice or just society as a whole with with kids at the center? That's a great question. I think, I hope that we walk away with this remembering two things. One is that this particular pandemic and the physical distancing that it requires of all of us is in an odd way this incredible reminder and affirmation about the universal need for human relationships, for the young and the old and around the world across the cultures. And just as, you know, years ago, the the work in the orphanage, right, reminded us of how incredibly important relationships are to young children, the pandemic was a reminder that relationships are essential to healthy living for all people. I think number two is the pandemic along with the Black Lives Matter movement is a wake-up call about the gross inequities that has permeated our society, our neighborhoods, and our policies, and our programs. And so from our particular kind of perspective, I think one of the places these inequities show up most prominently is whether or not people had access or continue to have access to developmental relationships. When families' living situations are unstable, when families' internet's unstable, when families' access to basic equipment is unstable, all of a the sudden they're not only cut off from food and shelter and stability, they're also cut off from the developmental relationships that children need, but also what the adults need. And so as we go forward, you know, there are so many in the field who are deeply committed to equity issues. And I think, Ken, I want to echo what you said about this intentionality part, that if we can collectively and intentionally think about how is this new world that we're going to build ensure equitable access to developmental relationships for young children, for youth, for teachers, for families, right? For everybody in the community. And, and I think to the extent that relationship is the, are the roots, the foundations for healthy development, then access to relationship, access to authentic developmental relationship ought to be as essential as access, right? To water, to food, to shelter, to materials. Yeah. Your research and your practice work through Simple Interactions and other efforts really shows we can do that. That's not just sort of telling everyone they should suddenly be able to magically fly or something. I mean, that we actually, we can do this. We can scale, quote unquote, relationships, but not in the the sense of 
replicating a widget, but that there's hope in that prospect. Junlei Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us on the Rooted in Relationships podcast. Um, it's been an honor, and we'll be continuing to, to follow your research and your work and insist that you stay in touch. Of course, we have kept in touch. Thank you, Ken. We have. Thank you. What a powerful conversation between Dr. Kent Pickell interviewing Dr. June Lee Lee, who is a senior lecturer in childhood education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about this show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with our next episode of Rooted in Relationships. The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen development of relationships with young people, visit the Resources Hub on our website, searchinstitute.org.